Well, hey, you're listening to the Resonate Church Monmouth Sermons Podcast. Whether you're a part of the Resonate family or you're just a friend of ours tuning in, we're so glad that you're here. We are a church here in Monmouth, Oregon that exists for the college campus and our broader community. So if you'd like to learn more or get further connected, head over to resonate.net slash Monmouth. Otherwise, hope you enjoy today's sermon. Really, really excited we get to gather in this space. Um, I have a question for you to kick things off tonight. So question, you don't have to speak out loud. I just want you to think about it. Here's the question. Um, The question is this. What do you believe poses the most significant threat to your personal health today in 2023? What, What do you believe is the greatest threat, the greatest danger to your personal health today in 2023? That's my question for you. Uh, whatever you're thinking, not sure what you're thinking, what's going through your mind right now. I, also, I don't ask that to, to rise a level of anxiety at all. But whatever you're thinking, I found this out this week. In May of this year, the United States Surgeon General released shocking data about a new health crisis facing Americans. In the publication titled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. The current U.S. Surgeon General himself, Dr. Vivek Murthy, writes this, I'm going to quote. When I first took office as Surgeon General in 2014, I didn't view loneliness as a public health concern. But that was before I embarked on a cross-country listening tour where I heard stories from my fellow Americans that surprised me. He goes on to say this, loneliness is far more than a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health. It's associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. I brought a graphic from the publication with me on the screen. It's kind of hard to see. The drums are maybe a little bit in the way. But at the bottom, you see the odds of premature mortality, the odds of premature death. The number one thing that increases your odds is a lack of social connection. A lack of social connection. So what Dr. Vivek Murthy is suggesting, and I'm not advocating for this, but what he's suggesting would be that it would be better to hang out with a group of people who smoke 14 cigarettes a day than it would be to do life alone. That's what this data is revealing. It's pretty stunning, if you ask me. I also learned this this week. Um, In 2018, Great Britain approved the world's first loneliness minister. Anybody know that? The world's first loneliness minister. Her sole job as the loneliness minister is to address the same epidemic that the U.S. Surgeon General identified. Japan soon followed suit. I could go on for hours. And I don't think we need much convincing. We've lived through a global pandemic. We experienced quarantine and isolation and things with that. The smartest people in the world have all told us That sociologically, uh, psychologically, um, and even uh, physiologically, isolation, loneliness is not good for us. It's not good for us. And tonight we're here to take it a little bit deeper and even to say that it's not God's design for our lives that we do experience loneliness and isolation. Uh, So if you're here last week, we started kind of a a three-week mini sermon series where we're talking about the balanced Christian life. And the reason we're doing this is to give a basic framework for what it means to follow Jesus and experience life with him and to experience the balance that he actually offers 
And part of that is to kind of give an introduction to our church and the kinds of disciples we want to be and the kinds of disciples of Jesus we want to make. So the balanced Christian life, we looked at this last week, we'll look at it next week too. Just just kind of the the framework, the scripture from which we've pulled this series is out of Luke chapter 6. So not asking you to turn here, but Luke chapter 6, we'll look at it again, verses 12 through 19. Here's a day in the life of Jesus. A day in the life of Jesus. Verse 12, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Simon, Judas, and Judas, who became a traitor. Verse 17, he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. For the last seven years, our church has taken this this passage of scripture and has applied it to this triangle shape. So we looked at a lot of triangles last week. And in this triangle shape, we see the balanced Christian life the balanced Christian life, and we see it in the life of Jesus. We see up in that first verse, verse 12, Jesus has a relationship, a thriving relationship with his heavenly father. So so last week we talked about the idea that through faith in Jesus and what he's done in his perfect perfect life, his sin-bearing death and victorious resurrection, we can have access to him. We can have access to the God who made us and who loves us. We also see in, we see that Jesus gathered a community of followers that he spent most of his time with. Jesus spent like most of his public ministry with these followers of his. And it shows us that a significant aspect of following Jesus is being intimately connected with other followers of Jesus, not being isolated, right? Not being lonely. And then we see out that Jesus had a purpose bigger than himself. Jesus and his community ministers to, to those who aren't yet in his community. He ministers to people who don't yet follow him. He pursues, heals, loves outsiders, and it shows us what it means for us as Christians to have out relationships with people who don't yet know Jesus. So we've looked at this text. We've looked at the life of Jesus and said, this is the balanced Christian life. So tonight we're zooming into that second vertex on the bottom right there in, as you may have guessed. So uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, tonight. So if you have a copy of scripture, your Bible app, maybe Matthew chapter 12, you can turn with me there. In the context for Matthew chapter 12 is that Jesus is doing his thing. Jesus is doing his thing. He's out in public. He's, he's healing people. And in chapter 12, uh, Jesus specifically heals uh, two men and then the crowds begin to gather around him. Uh, some people are seriously seeking him. They're, they're spiritually interested in Jesus. And then there's some Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are heated at Jesus, who are not happy with him. And so uh, Jesus begins speaking to the Pharisees in their hard hearts. And then he's interrupted at the end of chapter 12. And that's where we're going to be, verse 46, here at the end. So 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. So this moment, right, Jesus is out in these crowds and Jesus' mom and his brother show up. And they're like, hey, they tell somebody kind of out, out the outside of the crowd, hey, can you, can you tell Jesus we're here? 
We're like, okay, maybe we read this and we're thinking, okay, Jesus, earthly blood family shows up. And, uh, and maybe the assumption is, okay, Jesus is going to stop what he's doing and, and say, hey, sorry, guys, family's here, got to go. So I kind of envision this going down like the great sports movies. Um, if you ever seen like the Rocky series, right? Rocky Balboa stuns the world, defeats the former heavyweight champion. The crowds rush the rings. Rocky's shouting one name the whole time. They're pressing in on him and Rocky's going, Adrian, Adrian, Adrian. And he tries to make his way through the crowds trying to find that one person, his wife. So we read this and we think, it's probably gonna go down like that with Jesus, right? Adrian, Mary, where's my brothers? But we keep reading. Verse 48. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Okay, Jesus, interesting question, bro. Are you, do you have some stuff going on in your mind? Did you forget who you are? Did you forget you had a re, like an earthly mother, Mary, and father, Joseph, and, and brothers? But no, Jesus is asking a question, a rhetorical question, to make a significant point. Um, look, look what he says next, verse 49. If you have a pen, maybe underline this in your Bibles. Verse 49. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Interesting. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What Jesus is saying is, guys, listen, my true community, my true family, they're all right here. He points to the disciples, right? My true community, my true family, they're all right here. What's he saying? He's saying the family that he values the most was the family of his followers. The family that he identifies with the most is his family of his followers. This language, this picture is consistent through the rest of the gospels, the rest of the New Testament, this picture of the church, God's chosen people as the family of God. So two crucial things that this means for us tonight. Uh, First of all, it means this. You can't come to Christ without coming to his family. You can't come to Christ without coming to his family. Um, You you can't come to Jesus and simultaneously stiff arm his church. The, The reason for that is because the moment you trust in Jesus... This is last week, right? The moment you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Jesus, he invites you in his family. He calls you his own family. And guess what? The minute he does that, you now are family with the other people that Jesus calls family because they've repented and trusted in Jesus. You can't come to Christ and stiff arm his people. Uh, this pushes back, if we're honest, this, push back, this pushes back against the individualistic God and me uh, kind of distorted version of Christianity that exists today specifically in our Western context. Just, just God and me, man. I got Jesus, I don't need the church. Just God and me, I'm good. No. <laughs> the, the entire New Testament was written to the context of local churches, of local communities of faith. Um, lone wolf Christianity is foreign to the New Testament. And, and here's what's crucial for us tonight. What's crucial is this. In God's economy, go back to the U.S. Surgeon General. In God's economy, His church is the primary antidote, the the primary healing agent, the healing power for loneliness and isolation. His church. 
That's what Jesus has said. So for Christians, it's supposed to be in the church where God fulfills our need for companionship and gives us a spiritual family that will last for all eternity. And I actually think this presses back against the 21st century church culture that has honestly idolized marriage and idolized the nuclear family, perhaps at the cost of the biblical picture of church's family. Here's how one author says it. Rebecca McLaughlin says this, the biological family is a precious gift from God, but it's a gift that calcifies. It, it hardens. It becomes not as beautiful when cut off from the family of church. If we must choose between family and faithfulness to Jesus, we must choose Jesus. If following Jesus means we get rejected by our parents, we remain single when we long to marry, or we miss out on having children, Jesus promises us much more in Christian family than we might have lost. Much more. For those who put their trust in Jesus, family does not come first. Jesus comes first. Our love for anyone and anything must stem from our first love for him. Much more in Christian family than we might have lost. Do you realize how cruel it would be for the God of the universe to say anyone who remains unmarried, anyone who, for whatever reason, can't have biological children, anyone who's ever lost a loved one, anyone who's ever been abandoned by a parent, do you realize how cruel it would be for the God of the universe to say, sorry, no companionship for you. Sorry, no relational intimacy for you. The fact of the matter is family, church's family means that there's hope for anyone. If they've had abandonment, if they've lost a loved one, if perhaps God calls them to singleness, if they never have biological children, much more in Jesus than we might have lost without him. So you can't come to Christ without coming to his family. Secondarily, you can't serve Christ without serving his family. You can't serve him without serving his family. In Matthew chapter 25, 40, I don't have it on the screen, Jesus says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus says, how you treat my brothers and sisters and my mother, that's how you treat me. That's, that's how you treat me. In Acts chapter nine, there's this significant moment where a guy named Saul, a Pharisee, who's literally like famous for murdering Christians and persecuting the church, Saul's on his way to Damascus to find more Christians, to put them to death for their faith in Jesus. And on his way to Damascus, uh, the Lord knocks him off his horse onto the ground. And all the scripture says is a light from heaven shone around him and a voice from the Lord Jesus himself says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What's Saul doing? He's persecuting Jesus' people. But Jesus so identifies with his family that he says, Saul, what you've been doing to my people is what you've done to me. The reverse is true. When we serve his people, when we serve the family of God, we're serving Jesus. We're serving God himself. We can't bifurcate those things. So you can't come to Jesus without coming to his family. You can't serve Jesus without serving his family. So the conclusion 
in this is that if we want to balance life with Jesus, we've got to give ourselves to the family of God. We've got to give ourselves to the church. We, we can't play this individualistic Jesus and me version of Christianity that's so prevalent in our day. We've got to come to his family. So, so the question in this maybe that you're wondering is like, okay, Ben, that's a great like 30,000 foot level, big picture uh, view of what this means. But, but what does this actually look like in my life? What, what is like God's actual intention for my life as I, as I press into his family and I get connected to his family? So for the last few minutes here, I just want to suggest based on several passages of scripture, I don't have a lot on the screen, but just want to suggest this really simple summarizing sentence. So you can maybe write this down. This summarizing sentence that I think is, is biblical and accurate. And here it is. God intends to use his family, his church, to develop you, to protect you, and to love you. God intends to use his family, his church, to develop you, to protect you, and to love you. So I'm just going to go through the three of these really quickly with us. So develop you. A few passages. Um, James chapter five, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. First Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some have done, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. God intends to use his church to develop you. Um, the theological, like fancy word for this is sanctify you, sanctification. And, and all that word means is to, is to be made more holy, to be transformed, to look less like your old dead self that's been laid in the grave and more like the Christ who's raised you to new life. Um, in this part, part of God's gift to transform us, to sanctify us, to, to make us um, into the beautiful, the beautiful people who reflect his goodness is that he gives us each other. He, ge- he gives us each other. So, so James chapter five literally says, you wanna get healed? You wanna be healed of some stuff in your life? You, you wanna see that brokenness redeemed and transformed and renewed? then confess your sins to one another. Not, not to God in private, but confess your sins to one another and pray for one another and you'll be healed. Healing happens in community. Healing happens in community. Um, spiritual formation, like disciple making, as Paul says to the Corinthian church in chapter 11, happens more in the mundane moments of life than it does when the guy on stage talks to you. Listen, I I love Sundays. I love gathering together. I believe in the power of the preached word of God. But if I'm really honest with you, when I look back at my life and I think about the moments that have been life-changing, I don't think of a lot of moments where guys talking to me on a stage. I, I think about the moments like these. When I was talking about the sermon hours or days after it happened with people in my village. self reflect and self-discovery going on in my mind. It, it, it happened in moments like this when I was sitting in the car weeping with a brother in Christ, mourning the brokenness of the world and begging God to redeem and transform. Life-changing moment, powerful moment. 
It happened when I was in the kitchen of my pastor's house in college. And for the first time, I was hearing someone who followed Jesus, who was mature in Jesus, confessing sin. And I started to learn what it means for the spirit to transform our desires and our appetites, to make us hate the things that we used to love and love the things that we used to hate. Happened in a moment where a friend showed me how he read the Bible every morning and how he journaled and how he met with God in that way and experienced his presence. So, so friends, this is why we have discipleship groups. We, we don't have discipleship groups so we can basically get together in these smaller groups and, and exist like every other social group in the world. We can just come together and talk about our problems and say, that, that person at work is really hard to deal with or I had this issue. To di-. No, we have our discipleship groups to come together and to say, we're gonna take our spiritual formation seriously. We're gonna come together and we're gonna confess our sins together. We're gonna repent together and we're gonna walk in a new way of living by the grace of God. God intends to develop you in your faith through his people. Second, protect you. Protect you. A few Proverbs, they're pretty poignant. Uh, Proverbs 11, where there's no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Yikes, yikes. But a wise man listens to advice. Hebrews chapter three, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh man. Uh, Years ago in our church, when I was still in college, we went through a sermon series titled, How to Wreck Your Life. <laughs> Pretty great sermon series title, if you ask me. <laughs> but sermon series, How to Wreck Your Life. And in the first sermon, kind of the opening line of the series was this phrase. It said this, every wrecked life begins not so much with an immoral decision, but with an unwise decision. So um, the spouse who commits adultery and wrecks their marriage and wrecks their life it doesn't start with adultery. It started with the unwise decision for that spouse to get emotionally connected to someone that wasn't their spouse at work. The unwise decision. And it, it kills me to say, guys, but, but I've seen this like up close and personal. I've seen this to be true time and time again, dozens of times in the last 10 years. And, and part of the reason God gave us his church is to come near to get around godly people who can love us enough to give us faithful wisdom and counsel and to protect us, to protect us from shipwrecking our lives. Do you have a friend who can look at you and say, hey, you got something in your teeth? But, you know, I'm talking about something that's more significant than something in your teeth. Do you have that friend? Uh, Proverbs doesn't say, I'm not asking if you have Christian friends. I'm asking you if you have someone in your life who's godly, who's mature, who's following after Jesus, and you said, here, have the spare key to my life. You know what I'm saying? You give someone the spare key to your house. Hey, bro, come over whenever. Come over whenever. Fridge is open. You can have whatever you want. You can come in any time of the day, any time of the night. Come over whenever and see what's up. See what's in my life. Have you given someone the spare key to your life in that way? To say, I'm an open book. You have the green light to come in whatever you want to ask me any question and to make no assumption about how I'm doing? Do you have that kind of person in your life? Um, 
the, the key in this, as Proverbs says, is not just letting people speak truth to you. It's, it's letting them um, speak truth to you and then actually listening to what they say. <laughs> it's not just coming to people and saying, hey guys, I've made this decision about my life. It's coming to people and saying, hey, I wanna involve you. I'm processing this decision. I'm not informing you about the decision I've already made. I wanna involve you as I make this decision. So, so friends, I, I've seen it happen time and time again, the sad, crushing stories of people wrecking their marriages, their friendship, wrecking their faith, bailing on faith in Jesus. It all starts with the same thing. It starts with someone distancing themselves from the very people God's put in their life to protect them. So, friends, let's not, let's not stiff-arm the church. Number three, love you. Um, John 13, John 15. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Greater love has no one than this than someone, that someone lay his life down for his friends, John 15. Um, In this, of course, uh, I I would say that both God's desire to develop you and God's desire to protect you are both forms of his love. But specifically, what I mean in this is... um, Maybe I'll I'll phrase it this way. What I mean is this. Have have you ever had a moment in your life where someone says to you exactly what you needed to hear at exactly the right time? Yeah, I know I have. Uh, Get real honest. Like literally a week ago, seven days ago, that happened to me. Seven days ago, someone grabs me, says this small thing to me, and I was like, were you you spying on me? Like, Like, how did you know I needed this? How did you know that I needed that? When you pause and you realize that, that God is sovereign and he's given his spirit to all of his people and that in certain moments, a need that arises in your heart, he prompts someone else in his church to come and meet that need through that person. When, when you realize that, it like causes you to worship in a new way. <laughs> You're like, oh my goodness, how kind you are, Lord. You love me so much. You haven't left me out to dry. You've sought to meet all of my needs and provide for me. So I, I could go on in this forever. Um, the last thing I'll say is when, when you just kind of say, hey, I'll, I'll just do the Sunday church thing and maybe just show up on Sundays every here and there, but um, I'm gonna kind of generally distance myself from friendships and relationships inside the church. Um, I'll skip village. Maybe I, I'm not interested in being in a discipleship group. When, when you kind of have that posture, you're missing out on the possibility for God to love you, and even more so on the possibility for God to use you to love someone else. So God wants to love you through his church. Um, so to wrap up tonight, here's what I want to end with. Um, more, more than all of this, more than God's desire to protect you, develop you, love you, here's what I want to say. Um, to end I want to say this among God's people among God's family is the one place in the world where you can be fully known and fully loved at the same time among the church of Jesus is the one place where you can be fully known and fully loved at the same time here's here's what Tim Keller a pastor said about this this has profoundly shaped my life He says this, 
To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Y'all know what that feels like? They, they love me and they accept me maybe in this social group over here, but I kind of have to wear a mask. I kind of have to pretend. What if they found out about the dark stuff in my past? What if they knew about the anger that, that kind of bubbles inside of me? What if they realize that I'm a different person in private than I am in public with them? To be loved and accepted but not known, it's comforting to a degree, but it's superficial. It's shallow. And you kind of end up feeling lonely, don't you? To be known, on the other hand, and not loved, that's our greatest fear. <laughs> that's our number one fear. That's my greatest fear. And we've all experienced this, where we have these moments where we were known fully, someone found out who we are fully, we were fully exposed, and then we were rejected for it. We've all experienced that. Someone decided that we were too much for them, that they couldn't handle it anymore, and they bailed on us. It's our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, it humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. The church of Jesus Christ should be the one place in the world where you can be fully known and fully loved at the same time. And the reason why is because the church is the one group of people in the world who have first been fully known and fully loved by God himself. Fully known and fully loved by God himself. On the cross of Jesus, when Jesus stretches arms out on the cross, you were fully known. You were fully known. All of your sin, past, present, and future, even the sin that you're not even aware that you committed against the holy God, all of it was nailed to the cross in that moment 2,000 years ago when Jesus stretched his arms out. You're fully known and fully exposed. God knows all of the worst things about you more than you even do yourself. You're far worse than you even know. Same goes for me. You're fully known, fully exposed. And yet at the same time, because of the cross, you can be fully loved and accepted. Why? Not because you're great, but because Christ was great in your place. Because Christ stretched his arms out and took all of your exposure, took all of your sin, all of your shame on himself, he did that so that you could be forgiven and accepted and loved just like he is. And friends, when you've been loved into a family like that, then, then that's a family you want to be a part of, isn't it? When the, when the operating principle is grace, that's a family that you want to be a part of. So if you come into the church of Jesus, there should be no sense of bitterness. There should be no sense of pride of me kind of lifting my nose and looking down on other people. Why? Because I've been fully known. I sit at the foot of the cross. And yet at the same time, there should be no one who limps around. No one who says, I'm, I'm worse than everyone else. Why? Because you've been lifted to the clouds. Because he loved you so much, he died for you. So friends, more than anything else, this is what we need. And only the church, through the power of the gospel, is where we find this. 
So in just a moment, I have a question for you. I actually want to invite you to process this question with the people around you. But uh, the last thing I'll say, I want to press on us a little bit. Um, this right here, what Tim Keller says, is why I think it's God's best for you to find one church, to find one community of faith for you to go deep and to press into. I, I think it's better to be known by a few and loved by a few than it is to be recognized by everyone but superficially admired. You see what I'm saying? So better to be known deeply by a few, to know others deeply in a significant way than it is to recognize everyone and have everyone recognize you, but to live in isolation and loneliness because you're overcommitted and no one actually knows who you really are. Um, So listen, I I know a lot of maybe young people with church backgrounds, they, they wanna get as much Jesus as they can. So I'm going to go to this church and this church and this, uh, this, ministry, this parachurch ministry and this thing and this thing. And, and the heart behind it is so great. But, but my fear in that is like, oh, man, you're overcommitting. And, and you're going to be isolated. You're not going to be known. So I think it's God's best for you to press in. And, and I'm not even saying it needs to be Resonate Church. I actually, I happen to know the best gospel-centered, uh, Bible-believing church in Monmouth Independence. And the best one's not Resonate. Um, the best one's the one that you commit to. <laughs> So it, it might be, but it might be another church. But I think it's God's best for you to press in, to go deep. So here's the question. I'm, I'm gonna release you. Just talk about this with the neighbor if you're comfortable. If you're not, um, then you can just listen. You can listen as people talk. But here's the question. What do you think God is saying to you about where you find community right now? <laughs>